Hey everybody, I just want to give a quick shout out before getting started today. If you're listening to this podcast, it probably means you care about the Bay Area, but it's not always easy to keep up with what's going on in the news. I know that sometimes I'm feeling so overwhelmed that all I can do is scan the headlines because it feels like there's so much going on. Fortunately, there's a new podcast that's helping me stay up to date on the Bay Area's biggest stories, and I think you guys would like it too. It's called The Bay, and is produced by KQED. The Bay is usually about 10 minutes long, it comes out a few times per week, and it does a great job of explaining the most important local news. So check out The Bay wherever you get your podcasts. I think you'll dig it. Okay, on to the episode. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. I'm Eric Arnold. I am a photojournalist. I've uh, done a lot of hip-hop stuff, a lot of Bay Area stuff, and uh, I guess at this point I'm kind of a cultural historian. So I co-curated the uh, Oakland Museum exhibit Respect, Style and Wisdom of Hip-Hop, and I did the Bay Area Hip-Hop Atlas. There's a reason why Eric Arnold got the job of making the Bay Area Hip-Hop Atlas. It's because he's a walking encyclopedia of stories on the topic. Take this one, for example. It happened in the early 90s when Eric was the editor of a rap magazine called 4080. There was that one time that, you know, I was at the 4080 office and I think we were working on an issue. I mean, this is down on Parker Street in Berkeley, and the publisher was talking to Master P. Most people think of Master P as one of the first big moguls of Southern rap music, but he started his record label. No Limit, right here in the East Bay. He had a tiny little shop up in Richmond, long before he went quadruple platinum. Master P was trying to make the case that he should get a cover. The publisher initially was reticent. He didn't want to give P a cover. And P shot a gun into the air. And he ended up getting his cover. And then a year later, he was on the cover of Forbes. Okay, now, a lot of music writers can tell you all kinds of juicy gossip. But Eric goes way deeper than the drama. He knows how all the pieces in the game fit together. Let's finish that story about how Master P grew No Limit Records from a tiny boutique label into a household name. He was a Laney student, you know, I mean, he soaked up game from E40. You know, that's how he learned about distribution, that kind of thing. And then he brought that to New Orleans and, uh, or to the, to the South and, basically became a fulcrum for that whole southern explosion that happened. And, you know, that gets kind of back to your earlier question about how influential is the Bay, you know. And the Bay is, has been kind of involved in hip-hop on every level, in every era. Even before it was hip-hop, it's in the DNA of hip-hop. One of the cool things about Eric's hip-hop atlas is that it doesn't just start with the birth of rap. It goes back to the roots, the dances and the sounds that eventually formed the movement that was born in New York in the late 70s. Eric traces some of those roots to right here in the East Bay. And another cool thing about the Atlas, it's all over the musical map. 
It's not just one aspect of Bay Area hip hop. You know, when I get asked to define, well, how would you characterize the Bay? And I'm like, you might think that's an easy question to answer, but it's actually really not because, first of all, you have to go by era, you have to go by style, you have to look at the fact that a lot of these people, like, were in the same circles. So when the coup was coming up and they were doing shows at Eastmont Mall, they were doing shows alongside Keek the Sneak. And if you listen to their music, you would think that they have nothing in common. If you're not a hip-hop head, he's talking about how the coup is known for leftist revolutionary lyrics, while Keek the Sneak is associated with hyphy, which is party music. Oh, and speaking of the coup, here's another little footnote to highlight Eric's reputation. There's an incredible new movie that just came out called Sorry to Bother You. It's written and directed by the coup's MC, Boots Riley. In the film, when a character calls the media to tip off a reporter, the reporter he calls is named Eric Arnold. I just thought that was a cool little Easter egg. Back in the 90s, Eric and Boots used to work together at the telemarketing firm that inspired the film's script. Anyway, these are the kinds of connections that give the Atlas its authority. This Atlas combines the music and the geography with the history in a way that makes it an important read, even if you don't listen to much rap. In the words of Dead Prez, it's bigger than hip-hop. Hip-hop comes from the experience of inner-city youth of color who have really been the generational victims of decades of redlining and of sort of restrictions on uh, equity and mass incarceration and stuff like that that end, end up being restrictions on freedom. Um, so it's really important, you know, what, what is culture? Like when we unpack it, where does culture really come from? Um, I think for communities of color, the place culture really comes from is a need to be resilient because you're facing all these challenges that are really tough and a lot of adversity that you might have to overcome. Some of those challenges came from the political leaders of Oakland and Berkeley who saw hip-hop as a threat. And we're going to get into that, along with much, much more, on today's episode. So crank it up. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I first really was exposed to hip-hop at Casadera Music Camp because I worked there over the summer. So as soon as hip-hop sort of came to California, we started seeing breakdancers uh, that would come through, that would do the music camps and that kind of thing. Casadero Music Camp is up near the Russian River in Sonoma. I told Eric I thought it was a little ironic that he first learned about this music that's usually associated with urban areas while he was up in the woods, but he didn't find it that unusual. Musicians who once played with Miles Davis worked at this camp, so it was a pretty hip place. Anyway, this is where Eric first developed his lifelong love of hip-hop. My co-workers on the kitchen staff would bring in these tapes, um, so that's where I heard very early stuff like Run DMC, Egyptian Lover, World Class Wrecking Crew when they had Dr. Dre. I mean, this is like 83, 84. So this is before it's on MTV, before the Beastie Boys have a number one record. The first rap song to hit the top 40 was Rapper's Delight from Sugar Hill Gang. That happened in 1979. 
but hip-hop remained a pretty small genre for a while. It wasn't until 1985 that Run DMC became the first rap group to go platinum. And that changed everything. I think the first real big hip-hop show I saw was Run DMC at the Oakland Coliseum, the Raising Hell tour. And that was kind of a legendary tour. I mean, that was, for the Bay Area, I think that was kind of a before and after moment. Afterwards, it was like, okay, now we really know what hip-hop is. And you just saw, like, people really embracing it on a level that hadn't happened before, whereas before, it was kind of a subculture. I mean, it was really underground. There weren't that many rap records even out. Everyone listened to everything. Backing up for a second, hip-hop has never just been about rapping. Since the early days, a lot of fans have considered there to be four primary elements. MCing, DJing, graffiti, and breakdancing. And long before hip-hop shows were selling out the Oakland Coliseum, some of these elemental roots were growing in a park a few miles further east. I happen to have a copy of the Atlas right here, and if we thumb through the East Bay section, we come to, where is it? One of the places where um, a genesis of hip-hop culture happened, uh, which was Sobrani Park out in East Oakland. There was a national boogaloo trend, um, the boogaloo dance. It was like an African-American youth-oriented dance that became sort of a fad, you know, like the Twist or the Watusi or the Mashed Potatoes. And all these Boogaloo records started coming out in 1965, 1966. And then uh, James Brown jumped on the trend and made a couple Boogaloo records. So there was a show called Where the Action Is, and uh, James Brown appeared on that show. Now, in Oakland, people saw that, and they not only imitated the James Brown Boogaloo, which is also known as the Soul Boogaloo, but then they started innovating off of that and creating additional moves, uh, both individual moves, and then there were like duo routines and eventually group routines. Uh, so, so Brandy Park in East Oakland, uh, it has this basketball court uh, where from like 67, 68, very early on, Boogaloo crews would come out to battle and there would be boogaloo ciphers, and they would use like car headlights to light it up, kind of similar to what happened in New York where they use streetlights uh, to you know, power their generators. And so what happened is the boogaloo it spread from Oakland to nearby cities, and San Francisco and Richmond also developed their regional variants on the boogaloo. Hey kids, this is how dance moves spread before the age of YouTube and Instagram. That was also the time that funk music began to emerge. Uh, so the Soul Boogaloo eventually became the Funk Boogaloo, which is the Oakland Boogaloo. So that, that all started right here. And that was actually the first foundational element of uh, what we now know as hip-hop dance. It precedes b-boying and breaking by about seven or eight years. If you're trying to visualize how the Oakland Boogaloo informed those early b-boy moves, here you go. Well, if you've heard of pop locking, um, mm -hmm. uh, the popping part comes from Boogaloo. So it's a bunch of dances. There's um, 
the robot is associated with it. There's all these moves uh, that have been integrated into sort of like the greater canon of, of hip-hop dance, um, like the dime stop, you know, when you kind of stop on the dime, and that's like a West Coast version of the freeze that the b-boys uh, would do. Oh, and as long as we're talking about the robot, I've got to drop this little gem. When I interviewed Hammer back in the day, he claimed that the robot was invented at Fremont High School in 1966, which would place it before the introduction of locking in Southern California in 1969-1970. Fremont High is another East Oakland location that's in the Atlas. I, you know, haven't corroborated this, but uh, it's very possible, so he might be on point. Look, dances are always evolving out of other dances, and it's almost impossible to say who started what where, but the point is, public spaces have always played an important role in the geography of hip-hop. It's why there are three different Oakland parks featured in the Atlas, or five actually, if you count Lake Merritt and Ogawa Plaza. It's a space where youth of color can congregate and can sort of claim space. And the idea of claiming space is kind of central to hip-hop. If you look at the relationship between culture and environment, especially in the inner city because it's, you know, surrounded by concrete, uh, sometimes the, you know, the conditions aren't that great. So just to have a green space in the middle of that um, is very important. And you had Boogaloo at every public park in Oakland. Defremery, Sobrani Park, Mosswood, all these places where people just get down and dance. And these were places where you could see dancers developing like these hip-hop routines that are now classic. There are so many reasons why public parks were the perfect Petri dish for this movement. Besides visibility, accessibility was a crucial factor. In an urban environment, just the idea of creating community is really important. And also being able to create community with no cost to access. So that's the whole thing about parks and public spaces is there's no cover charge most of the time to get into the park. It's something that's, that's free of charge. And that's really, really important, too, because if there's a barrier, a financial barrier to access, then... You're going to limit people. You're going to, you know, you're always going to have people on one side of the fence and other people on another side of the fence. Unfortunately, once hip-hop started moving from the parks to the clubs and even bigger venues, that's when the problems ramped up, too. There was an incident, I think it was 87 or 88, it was uh, the first Def Jam tour, and it was headlined by P.E. P.E., that would be Public Enemy. And N.W.A. was on that bill, Stuff So Sonic was on that bill, I think EPMD, and uh, during N.W.A.'s set, Eze fired a cap pistol into the air, and bedlam ensued, and uh, basically a riot broke out. I mean, luckily, like, no one got shot at that show, um, but it was just kind of hectic. It was kind of crazy. Once the violence at shows escalated beyond fistfights, that's when the real crackdown happened. Probably the biggest thing that happened was in 19, 
89, there was a year-long ban on rap concerts in Oakland. That happened because there was a shooting uh, at a concert at the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, Now, what's really interesting is the response to that. Um, I mean, this was at a time when Oakland was blowing up. You had Too Short, Hammer, Digital Underground, all going at the same time nationally, as well as underground people like APG Crew and 415 with Richie Rich. So this is a time when Oakland hip-hop was really exploding. It was putting its mark on the national map, and here you have the city council saying no rap. No rap. I mean, it sounded like Sal in Do the Right Thing, right? You come into Sal's, there's no music. No rap, no music, no music, no music. Kabish, Understand? According to Alex Worth, a UC Berkeley grad student who's working on a dissertation about this topic, the explicit anti-rap restrictions mostly came from venues. But there's no doubt that politicians seem to conflate a lot of the drug-related crime that was happening during this era with the rap scene in general. You have to also understand that the golden age of hip-hop coincides with the crack era, with the Reagan years. So in Oakland, from like 85 to 92, you had triple-digit homicides. It It was really wild. No one is denying that there were people in the rap scene who were also involved with criminal activity, sure. And yes, violence at shows was a problem. But trying to ban an entire genre of music, that just seems way too punitive. As Eric Arnold puts it. You did have some public safety challenges during that time. But to blame an entire generation of black youth and to maybe impact that economically um, seems like a little bit of an overreach. Eventually, a group of UC Berkeley law students teamed up with folks from the hip-hop community to end the restrictions. There was an organization called uh, Group for Rap Industry Protection that protested it because there was also a similar moratorium in Berkeley. Uh, So cities were very afraid. But what happened is like after a year, there was a concert at the Henry J. Kaiser, uh, which featured uh, Too Short and Ice Cube. And it was a Stop the Violence concert. And it was successful. There was no real incidents that happened. Uh, And so hip-hop was allowed to continue. Unfortunately, journalists like Eric and Sam Lefebvre from the East Bay Express have recently documented how Oakland authorities are still discriminating against hip-hop. Some popular local rappers can't even book shows in their own hometown. That's a much bigger story that I'm not going to get into today, but I encourage you to look those articles up if you're interested. And when you read about the OPD trying to keep shows with predominantly person of color audiences out of Oakland clubs, consider this question. If downtown is not a welcoming space for all Oaklanders, then who is it really for? If you look at the Bay Area, it's been amazingly influential. I mean, it influenced the look, the style, the attitude, the dance moves, the ideology of hip-hop. In 1968, the Black Panthers opened up an information center at Bronx River in the Bronx, New York, that was visited by Africa Bambata before he became Africa Bambata. Africa Bambata was one of the very first hip-hop DJs. He might have even coined the term hip-hop. But in 1968, he was just an impressionable young kid. 
Uh, so when you look at, you know, Bambata's whole, uh, the Zulu Nation's whole ideology and philosophy and their kind of worldview, which is around sort of like black liberation, but also a, a cultural movement at the center of that, a lot of that was influenced by the Black Panthers. Uh, you know, you look at the attitude and the influence uh, or, or the image of the of the Black Panthers, you know, and that is something that completely crossed over to hip hop. If you look at one of hip hop's central dichotomies, which is sort of like the cross between Afrofuturism and pimpism, that can be defined by two movies that were shot in Oakland Space is the Place and The Mac. Space is the Place is the original Afrofuturist film, and it was shot right here in Oakland. The star of that film was Sun Ra, the jazz icon who basically created the cosmically freaky persona that was adopted by everyone from George Clinton to Andre 3000. And the other Oakland movie that Eric mentioned, The Mac, that's been sampled and referenced on so many rap albums, it would be impossible to count. For better or worse, that image of the Oakland pimp set the template for hip-hop's playa archetype. Mr. Pretty Tony, I mean, you know the rules of the game. I mean, your bitch just chose me. Now, we can settle this like you got some class, so we can get into some gangster shit. But it wasn't just the Bay Area's black politics and style that shaped the foundation of hip-hop. It was also, of course, the music. You look at funk music, and uh, the Bay Area, Oakland in particular, was one of the cultivating places the, for funk. You look at Sly Stone in particular. Uh, Sly performed at Panther rallies. He was the first to use a drum machine. He has records where he's sort of foreshadowing sampling. And then Larry Graham, of course, too. And Larry Graham came up with the slap bass line, you know, which uh, really transformed the whole, I mean, it, it changed the direction of black music. Like this. Ooh, ooh, they, ah. Larry Graham grew up in Oakland and first rose to fame playing with Sly and the Family Stone. His booty-shaking bass lines influenced the deep, trunk-rattling beats that really came to define West Coast hip-hop. Larry Graham's song, The Jam, is even sampled on one of the most iconic Oakland songs of all time, 93 Till Infinity by Souls of Mischief. Before the internet really exploded, the way that rappers blew up was by pushing records and eventually mixtapes and CDs. For rappers in New York, which was hip-hop's capital in the 80s and 90s, this meant that the big goal was to get signed to a major record label so they would produce and distribute your music. I'm not saying the East Bay rappers didn't want to get signed, but instead of waiting around for a deal that might never come, people like Too Short pioneered the indie route of putting out your own music. From day one, it was an independent region. If you look at Two Short's whole progression, he started out, you know, in East Oakland making personalized tapes, then started selling those tapes on the 1443 bus lines, and then out of the trunk of his car, and became this regional phenomenon, really the first regional phenomenon outside of New York, to the point where he's outselling national records by putting his tape 
in a record store on consignment. And the labels took notice of that. And so Short eventually, you know, got signed to a major, but he came up independently. And he also uh, gave that game to other people uh, in, 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 in the Bay Area. Um, you know, people like E-40, people like uh, Master P, you know, they're all sort of like branches off of that same tree of independent entrepreneurs. And once you establish a model, then that model, like, you know, other people can follow it. When E-40 and The Click started, they were going to college at Grambling. So they took the out the trunk model and they spread it throughout the South. And they would go to radio stations and consignment stores throughout the South and ask people to put their tape, you know, in the window and, and whatnot. And that's how the, the Bay sort of developed a following in the South before you even had the Dirty South as a regional variant of hip hop. This style of hustling was so lucrative for people like E-40 and MC Hammer that when the big labels did come knocking, the rappers had to be convinced that they'd make more money with the major than staying independent. And speaking of Hammer, we can't talk about Oakland's influence on hip-hop without giving props to the very first rapper of all time to go diamond, aka sell more than 10 million copies of an album. What sort of raised the commercial ceiling for hip-hop and brought in this mainstream pop audience that really hadn't been paying too much attention before. People forget how big Hammer got, but he was the first rapper to become a pop megastar too. Eric reminded me that Hammer even had his own cartoon show for a while. Not bad for a kid who started out dancing in the parking lot outside of A's games. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Just one more nugget on how East Bay hip-hop has always been on the cutting edge of innovations and hustle. This story is about hieroglyphics, who still hold a music festival in the streets of Oakland every year called Hiro Day. In, you know, 97, 98, Hiro became really the first hip-hop group to use the internet. And there was a fan-created site, hieroglyphics.com, that they kind of took over and uh, they sort of established that model of a digital platform and were able to keep it going independently. So there you go. More than a decade before the rise of SoundCloud rap, Oakland was already taking it to the cloud. There's so much in the Atlas that we didn't talk about, but this is where I'm going to end today's episode. However, if you want to see stories about Tupac and Digital Underground and Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue scene, and TDK, and Mystic Journeyman, and a whole bunch of other local hip-hop lore, there's still time. Well, I just want to reiterate that the uh, Respect, Style, and Wisdom of Hip-Hop exhibit at Oakland Museum of California goes on to August 12th, uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, you still have a chance to see it. If you've seen it already, bring your friends and family, you know, grandparents, kids, it's uh, that type of show. Uh, and then, uh, you know, if you want to uh, check out uh, the Atlas, you can get a copy in the OMCA store. All right. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank Rene de Guzman, who curated the Oakland Museum's hip hop exhibit, and Lindsay Wright, who connected me with Eric. Also, I want to thank Davey D and Alex Worth. 
As always, much love to the Oakland Library's History Room and everyone who contributes to the Oakland Wiki. I'll be posting some really cool photos related to this story on social media, so don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday. You can find all the links at eastbayyesterday.com. Also, I'm doing another presentation about the long-lost Oakland map at the Montclair Library on August 28th, so come check that out if you're interested. I'll have some maps for sale. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from James Brown, Larry Graham, Sly and the Family Stone, Public Enemy, Too Short, E-40 and the Click, Hieroglyphics, Souls of Mischief, MC Hammer, Dead Prez, Invisible Sound, and TTK. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.